0: Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you all. Uh, I consider it a privilege every time I am here to gather with the church. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to Jonah chapter one. Jonah chapter one is where we're going to be spending um, really the next couple of weeks, but especially today we're going to be in Jonah chapter one. We'll go through the other chapters later. Um, and as you're turning there, I wonder if you've ever played like word association games, right? Where one word is said and then you try and figure out the other word so for example samson and delilah Delilah, right Uh, david and guys are like Mm. goliath (laughs) work with me here david and goliath right um if i say al and you say green maybe you like music jazz particularly if i say al and you say pacino maybe you like movies actors if I say al and you say kohol, uh, you, you might need some help. Um, <laughs> there is prayer support after the service. In these stories that we tend to read, in Jonah, we usually associate it with Jonah and the big whale or the big fish. If you come from a fishing community like mine, it's a very confusing book because you can't figure out why he didn't just eat the fish. But What I hope for us to see is that this book is not ultimately about Jonah. It's not ultimately about the big fish. It's not about the mariners. It's not even about the Ninevites. Ultimately, the book of Jonah is about a gracious God who extends his mercy to a people who do not deserve it. There's an old tradition in how when this book was read, the Hebrews would read through the whole book. Then after that, they'd stand up, lay a hand on their shoulder and say, I am Jonah. So that they remind themselves not to do what we are most likely to do and associate ourselves with the hero of the story and remind themselves they are a lot more like Jonah than they care to admit. And you and I are a lot more like Jonah than we care to admit. And in this specific chapter what I hope we see in this running prophet who is running away from this whole text in Jonah chapter 1 I hope you see a rebellion particularly the prophet's rebellion I hope you see the repercussions of that rebellion and I hope you see a great rescue that was instituted for the very rebel that should have been destroyed this is a running prophet and I hope you see his rebellion the repercussions of that rebellion And a great rescue instituted by the very person who should have destroyed the rebel. So if you have your Bibles, Jonah chapter 1, I'm going to read from verse 1 to verse 16. And after that, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And you will respond by saying, thanks be to God. So for example, this is the word of the Lord. Well done. Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his god, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship, and had lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your god. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the, the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, Let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. Holy Father, would you help me step out of your way? Would you speak to me and speak through me to the end that our lives may be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? Forbid it, Lord, that anyone except you should get glory at this time. And so, Lord, what we do not have, please give us through your word. What we do not know, please teach us through your word. And what we are not. Please make us through your word. We pray these things for your glory and our joy in Jesus name. Amen. Rebellion. Repercussions. Rescue. What we will see in this running prophet life life, is these three things from Jonah chapter 1. So let's just dive right in. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now, when you see that phrase, the word of the Lord came to, that's a prophetic formula, if you will. It's not just for any random person. It is specifically the exact words of God given to the exact person of God who God has set apart to be his exact mouthpiece. That phrase is used for prophets. Now, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. That wouldn't happen to every Tom, Dick, and Harry in Israel. It was specifically for prophets. And it came to this Jonah, the son of Amittai. When we first see Jonah in the Bible, it's in 1 Kings chapter 14 from verse 23 and following. That text talks about a Jonah, son of Amittai, who went and prophesied to the king of Judah to protect them from the invasion of the Assyrians. The deal was the Assyrians were invading Israel. They had already obliterated the whole northern kingdom of Israel which was Israel and now they were coming to obliterate Judah. Jonah prophesies to the king and the king protects their northern border so that the Assyrians don't obliterate them. This Jonah has now been sent by the Lord And he has been told, Jonah, son of Amittai, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. His task was clear. It was not vague. He didn't need further clarification. He knew from whom the message had come, God Almighty. He knew to whom he was supposed to go, the Ninevites, and he knew when he was supposed to do it, right now. But Jonah... Let's say he had other plans. Jonah decided to go to Tarshish. To put that into context, Jonah had been sent to Nineveh, which was about 500 miles away from where he was. Instead, he went 3,000 miles in the opposite direction. Let's put that into context. Jonah had been sent to go to modern-day Iraq. That's where Nineveh is. Instead, he went to modern-day Spain. This guy is not just trying to get away from Nineveh. He's trying to get as far away as possible as he can from Nineveh. So you have to conclude at least two things. Number one, Jonah, you really don't fear God. In the history of Israel, no prophet had ever told God no. Because remember, rebellion is as simple as telling God, no. And the prophets before him had really hard tasks. Isaiah had been asked to walk around naked for three years as a sign to Israel from God. To be clear, Isaiah was not a young, handsome man with a six-pack. He was a grown man with grown children. So imagine your dad. Okay, I'll leave it there. (laughs) Ezekiel was told to cook food with dung and sleep on one side of his body for over 300 days. Jeremiah was told as a young man, as a young prophet, you will not get married. You cannot get married. He's the only guy in the history of guys who can go to his girlfriend and say, babe, it's not you, it's the Lord. I can't can't be with you. (laughs) Jonah was told to go deliver a message and he said, No. God said, go. Jonah said, no. And to be clear, he had also put his money where his mouth is. Scripture said he had already paid the fare. This isn't just his attitude. His actions were following it. You have to conclude he does not fear the Lord. But you also have to conclude he really doesn't want to go to Nineveh. Whatever it is about the Ninevites, he doesn't want anything to do with them. So what is it about the Ninevites that he simply could not stand. Nineveh happened to be the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Remember those guys who had already wiped out Israel and were coming for Judah? Those guys who Jonah had protected Judah against, he's now being sent to them. And to be clear the Assyrians were some bad dudes. One historian puts it this way, the Assyrians were the Nazi stormtroopers of the ancient world. They were a pitiless, power-crazed foe. They showed no restraint in battle, uprooting entire peoples in fury for conquest. For Jonah, Nineveh then was no ordinary city. It carried doom-laden, tragic memories. It stood as a symbol of evil incarnate. For centuries, its name remained a well-known allegory for evil. For Jonah, to go to Nineveh was like going to hell. God is truth. And whenever God speaks, only truth comes out of him. If God called the Ninevites evil, it's because they were. God said, Go. Jonah said, No. I mean, think about it. If you are a Jew in 1941, at the height of Nazi Germany's power, and God sent you alone to go to Berlin with a megaphone and say, Hey, I'm a Jew. I just want you to know if you do not repent, God will destroy you. Tell the truth. Would you go? I'm looking for a nod or a shake. No? Ah, so you are Jonah. Ah, I am Jonah. Rebellion is as simple as telling God no. And the Bible has really bad things to say about rebellion. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22 to 23, when Saul rebelled against God, God speaking through Samuel said, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than the offering of fat of rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness as bad as worshipping idols. My rebellious heart, your rebellious heart, looks a lot more like a witch doctor than you and I think. Our rebellious hearts are idolatrous, akin to witchcraft. So where are you telling God no? Young people, who are in serious romantic relationships with unbelievers. Knowing that God has said in 2 Corinthians 6 and places like that, that we should not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, and you are yoking yourself to a lifelong relationship with an unbeliever. What you are doing when you do that is exactly what Jonah was doing. You're telling God, No. No, I've waited too long for this man. No. She's good to me, and I'm going to marry her. No. That's rebellion. Because rebellion is as simple as telling God, no. Is there a workmate or a family member or a friend who God has laid heavily on your heart to share the gospel with, but every time you see the person, you look at them and you're just like, No. You fear what they will say about you. You fear what your workmates might start making fun of you. You fear not getting a promotion at work if you start sharing the gospel. You fear what your family members might think. You fear, you fear, you and I fear man so much that we are willing to tell God no. And the tragedy is when we fear man, we can't love them. Because love drives out fear. Is there a fellow member of the church who you had such a bitter conflict with that you know passages like Matthew 5 and Matthew 18 and Ephesians 4 say we should reconcile with, but every time she shows up in a room, every time he walks in the room, you're just going, ah, no. My ego, your ego rises. You think of the pain of the last conversation you had the bitterness you had, the disrespect you felt, and you say, no, they can be reconciled to God, but they don't need to be reconciled to me, even if we are members of the same church. You see, rebellion is as simple as telling God, no. Is it your money? The story is told of a wealthy businessman who came to get baptized, and the pastor explained to him, now, by this act of baptism... What you are saying is that everything you are and everything you have belongs to God and it is now for his use, not your own. Do you understand? He said, yes, 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 yes. So he was getting ready to be baptized and he took out his wallet and held it up. He went into the water and came back up and said, this one didn't go in. This one belongs to me. Is the thought of giving or sharing of our possessions and our money so painful, we would rather say, no, God will take care of them. In disobedience to his command to give. Where is it that you and I are saying no? And often, knowing my heart, often we rationalize our rebellion, right? We rationalize our disobedience saying, in view of these circumstances, I had to say no. I know God says do this, but in view of this set of circumstances, I had to say no. Don't you think Jonah did that? God told Jonah, go And he just happened to be in Tarshish. There just happened to be a ship there ready to take him to Tarshish. Mark it down. If you and I want to disobey God, there is always a ship ready to take us to Tarshish. If you and I want to rebel against God, there is always a way to do it. If you and I want to cheat on our spouse, there's always a man or a woman at work who is too good to be true and does all the things our spouse doesn't do and is willing to go there with us. If you and I are willing to be corrupt in business, there's always someone on the other side of the table who is happy to take money under the table and redirect funds to your personal account and my personal account. And by the way, Satan's job description is to make sure that ship is ready so that you and I can go further and deeper into our disobedience against God. The other way we rationalize our rebellion is by saying, I know the Bible says I should do this, but I just have such a great sense of peace about it. Right? Great sense of peace. Now, where have we seen this great sense of peace before? In Genesis chapter 3, remember what happened in the conversation between Adam and Eve and Satan? Eve said, we should not eat of this. We've been told not to eat of this. And Satan says, did God really say that? You'll be fine. What's he doing? He's giving her a sense of peace about rebelling against God. And even in this text, what's Jonah doing? He's fast asleep. He's gone down, he's rebelled against God. He's peacefully asleep in his rebellion against God. A sense of peace about disobeying God is a false sense of peace. A sense of peace that is fine, 100% fine, with disobeying the explicit commands of Scripture is a false sense of peace. It is a mark that you and I have a, a seared conscience. Our hearts are broken and foolish tools, foolish guides, rebellious guides, is what Jeremiah 17 says, broken and desperately wicked. And this is where we see not only a rebellious prophet in our own lives, but we also see that rebellion always, not sometimes, always brings repercussions from God. Specifically, rebellion against God invites the judgment of God. First, Jonah chapter 1 verse 4. In verse 4, there's that little phrase, but the Lord. Now, you know how if you're watching an action movie and there's lots of things happening and they want to focus your attention on this specific move, you hear this like soundtrack in the back and everything slows down like... Right? No. Okay. That's what's happening here. Everything's being slowed down. The curtain is being pulled back so that you can see the real player, the real actor's reaction to Jonah. So Jonah chapter 1, Jonah son of Amittai is told, Arise, go to Nineveh. But Jonah flees and goes to Tarshish. But the Lord, verse 4, heard a great wind upon the sea. God is not amused. This storm is a response to the prophet's rebellion. God is in charge of this storm, to be clear. He's the one who brought it. Older generations rightly calls things like storms an act of God, not an act of nature. And that's exactly right. Because God here, in this particular storm, is not only responding to Jonah because he has broken God's law, but because he has despised the lawgiver. His rebellion has brought upon them, not just Jonah, but also these pagans, these sailors, huge repercussions. So read verse 4. So the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. This was no ordinary storm. Then the mariners were afraid Each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. And there's a contrast in the next couple of verses that's drawn between the prophet and the pagans. The prophet is responsible for this storm. The mariners are terrified. They literally throw cargo off the ship. They're throwing their own livelihoods off the ship to preserve their lives. This is precious cargo. This is cargo that they're going to be paid for. This is how they feed their families But because of Jonah, now they're leaving their livelihoods in order to preserve their lives. Meanwhile, what's the prophet doing? Verse 5, the second part. But Jonah had gone down to the innermost parts of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Okay, so let's do a quick Bible study. Every time you see the word down, just shout it out, okay? So let's start in verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down. to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down. into it to go with them to, to Tarshish. Skip down to verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they held the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down. into the innermost parts of the ship and had lain and was fast asleep. Did you catch it? Down, 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 down. It is a picture of his spiritual life shutting down. Which shouldn't surprise us. Because why was Jonah fleeing? Three times scripture tells us he was running away from the presence of the Lord. Now, at that point, you, you almost want to pause and ask yourself, Jonah... What are you doing? Right? You know, like when your friend or your child is doing something silly, you're just like, What are you doing? Jonah knows better than this. How do you flee from the presence of an omnipresent God? Jonah, what are you doing? Jonah knows Psalm 139, verse 7 to 9, which says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Jonah, who is now on the uttermost parts of the sea and knows verses like this, what are you doing? To flee from the presence of the Lord was to flee from relational intimacy with God. Directly translated, it meant to flee from the face of God. Jonah literally didn't want God all up in his face. He was running away from intimacy with God. So it is not surprising that the more he runs away from intimacy with God, who is the source and sustainer of his spiritual life, what happens to his spiritual life? It shuts down, 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 down. So much so that he's fast asleep. That word used for asleep is the same word used to describe what happened to Adam when God put him to sleep. He's comatose, basically. Spiritually speaking, he's insensitive, he's comatose, which is why he can be fast asleep when other human beings are about to die on account of him. He's that spiritually insensitive. Meanwhile, the pagans, verse 6, so the captain came to him and said, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. (laughs) The irony that it is the pagans who understand we need some kind of divine intervention here and are calling on to God. Might be the wrong God, but they understand we need divine intervention. Meanwhile, the prophet who should be telling them we need divine intervention is fast asleep. The irony The first words out of the captain's mouth, out of the pagan's mouth, is what? Arise. Who told Jonah to arise before this? God. Isn't it not only ironic, but embarrassing, when God has to use a pagan to tell his prophet what he needs done? It is embarrassing when the pagan is more committed to his religion than the believer is committed to true religion. It is embarrassing all over this this chapter and all over this book, really. You will constantly see the pagans acting like the prophet and the prophet acting like the pagan. The pagans speaking like the prophet should and the prophet speaking like the pagans do. So, strapped... They call out to their God and realizing this is not happening. And you can, in your mind's eye, imagine the cacophony and chaos happening on this ship. Cargo is being overthrown. People are screaming to false gods. Jonah is asleep. So they eventually decide, since nothing is working, verse 7, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil is coming upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Okay, now we don't know exactly how lots worked. We don't know if it was something you threw. It seems to be something you threw because that's the act of casting. We cast lots. We don't know if it's spelled a name or pointed. Either way, they cast it once, Jonah. Twice, Jonah. Three times, Jonah. After 253 tries, it's Jonah, guys. This is happening because of Jonah. So it falls on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. God is not only in charge of the storm, He's in charge of how the lots fall. Proverbs chapter 16 verse 33 says, the lots, the lots are cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from God. God is making it clear that these repercussions are happening because of this person's rebellion. And when they ask him, where are you from? What is your country? Verse nine, first words out of Jonah's mouth. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now you read that verse, and you kind of have to pause because you're like, well, there's truth to what you're saying, Jonah, but I don't know that I agree with you, Jonah. Right? He is the God of heaven, He is the Lord Yahweh, who made the sea and the dry land, something these mariners desperately need right now. But, Jonah, you do not fear God. Right? Jonah had very good theology, but very little maturity. And a lot of knowledge that had not translated into spiritual maturity. Then the men were rightly, exceedingly afraid, and said to him, what is this that you have done? For they knew that he was fleeing from the presence of God. They understood that they were now dealing with an omnipotent God, and they were entirely unprepared to do so. And these problems had come upon them because of Jonah. I have a friend called Peter, Peter Okalet, we call him PA. When he was younger, I think about 11 years old, he's a second born, so there's a 13-year-old, him at 11, his sister at 8, and his next sister at 6. Um, he was playing, I, I confirmed this story with, with them, he was playing in the house and then they, they ran into the house from outside and somehow he managed to run upstairs, hit the toilet bowl and break it. Okay, He and his friend. His friend was, didn't live around there. So there's a broken toilet bowl. The only person who knows this is PA. So he kind of just leaves the toilet bowl there and leaves the house. Later on, his mother comes and his mom comes and all four of the children are there and she asks, what happened to this toilet bowl? And everyone is saying, we don't know what happened. PA is saying, I don't know what happened, as you'd expect. She asks again, I'm going to ask you one last time, what happened to this toilet bowl? And all of them are like, we genuinely don't know, including PA. I genuinely don't know. And being the typical mother she is, she's like, okay, so here's what's going to happen. I'm going to discipline all of you until you tell me Who's responsible for my broken toilet seat? So she'd literally, in Kenya we call it chapa, she'd spunk them. No one says anything. The next day, spank you again. The third day, spa- it happened for like four days. And they were just like, who did this, who did this? I think on like the fourth or fifth day, Pierre eventually said, yeah, it was me. His siblings are still bitter with him. <laughs> I confirmed this in the break. They are still a little upset with him, particularly the girls, right? They all suffered because of him the wrath of their mother fell on them because of him mark it down there's no such thing as private sin my sin will negatively impact me and maybe even destroy me my wife my children my husband my parents my siblings and my church My sin will affect how I relate with siblings in the faith and possibly compromise and even destroy a church. See, there's a progression here with Jonah. It starts with him fleeing the presence of God, then becoming insensitive to God, and it ends with him being almost comatose against anything. That looks like God. And the truth is that same progression happen, happens with you and me. We try and flee the presence of God. Show me someone who is fleeing the gathering of the saints in obedience to Hebrews 10, 20, Show me someone who is running away from the body of God and I will show you someone who is running away from the presence of God. And in a matter of time, their lives spiritually will go down, 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 down. Until they are almost unrecognizable as Christians. Show me someone who is refusing to be vulnerable with others in the faith. Open their lives for support and accountability and love and grace. And I will show you someone Who is not too concerned if their family members or their friends are going to hell? I'll show you someone who is insensitive to the plight of the unreached and the lost. I'll show you someone who is hardened against their own sin and the sin of others. But God does something providentially beautiful in this story, He sends a storm. Notes, God will send storms into my life and into your life to bring us back to Himself. This is what He did with Jonah. He sent a storm into Jonah's life to break the legs of his arrogant self reliance so that he's finally on his back looking the right way up to God for help, for sustenance. God will do that with you and me individually, and He'll do that with us as a church. He will send in storms to shake us up, lest we continue in deeper rebellion against him until we are flat on our backs and the only person who can help us in view of the repercussions we are suffering is God. And this is where you see a rescue instituted by the very God who should destroy these rebels. Verse 11, then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? This is an old way of saying, what must we do to be saved? We are about to die. What must we do to be saved? Verse 12, he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. There was only one shot, only one solution, only one way that the mariners would make it out of this alive. The sacrifice of one for the living of the many. That was the only way this was going to work. And the mariners tried their best to find a different solution in verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. In fact, the more they rode, the more tempestuous the sea grew against them. The more they tried to find their own solution to save themselves, the harder it was, the less it worked. Because they were not dealing with a normal storm, they were dealing with the judgment of God And there was no way out of the judgment of God except the way God himself had instituted out of that judgment. And then these beautiful words in verse 14. Seeing that nothing else could work and nothing else could save them, therefore they called out to
1: the Lord.
0: Now in your Bibles when you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's God's name, that's Yahweh. They weren't calling to a random God. They weren't calling to a false God anymore. They were calling to Yahweh, and this is what they said. Oh, Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us his blood, for you, oh, Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And in response, then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh. And made vows. It is a picture of them turning away from their idols and trusting in the one true living God. It is a picture of them accepting the rescue that could only be instituted by God because their plans for rescue were rubbish. They said, No, we'll take God's plan for rescue. And He rescued them. And in response, they made vows to Yahweh made sacrifices to Yahweh, gave their lives to Yahweh. Years later, approximately 700 years later, there would be another boat on another sea with other sailors, and one of them would be asleep. In Mark chapter 4, verse 35, Scripture says, On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with the boat, took, took, with them, took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm, sound familiar, arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling like it was threatening to break up. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Because when we see Jesus do the same thing Yahweh did, that means Jesus is Yahweh. It was God, not asleep because he was spiritually insensitive, asleep because he trusted his Father and God, and he himself knew that he controls those winds and waves. Asleep because he knew who's in charge. On this boat, in this storm, something greater than Jonah was here. And in the same way, God rescued mariners. The person in this boat would not be hurled into a sea of God's judgment. He would be flung onto a cross of God's judgment. Bore all the judgment and wrath on behalf of sinners, standing in their place, dying for them, rose three days later and offers them eternal rescue. Friend, if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, We want to encourage you and let you know we were all once like you. But we need to warn you, all of your life, in every area of your life, is one long act of rebellion against God. Every day you are telling him, no. And the repercussions that come with that are eternal. It's not a sea, it is a lake of fire, and it burns for eternity, but God has instituted a rescue by the death and resurrection of his son that if you, like these mariners, turn away from your false gods and idols and sin and trust in Jesus, you will be eternally rescued. And for those of us who are already in Christ, storms will come. But we can say we have an anchor that keeps the soul. Steadfast and sure when the billows roll. Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. We can say that. That regardless of what hits us, what is coming in our eternal joy far outweighs all of these sufferings, even when they are on account of our own sin. So as we close, three questions. Question number one. Where are you saying no to God? Because if you're in Christ, he wants to help you and I say yes. Will it be easy? No. Will it be worth it? Yes. Where are you currently experiencing the repercussions of your own rebellion and of my own rebellion? The good news is God sends in some of those repercussions and storms to bring us back to him. So would you come back to him? His arms are always open. And lastly, will we take this message of rescue to everyone like Jesus did? Because while Jonah was running away from his enemies, Jesus, in an act of supreme friendship, ran toward his enemies, died for them to make them his friends. And I'm I'm reminded of the stories of how this church was started in the early 70s. With no air conditioning, barely any roads, but there were some people who ran to this hard land to tell them about this great rescue, that they may escape the repercussions of their lifelong rebellion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Grant, O Lord, that we would be those who rejoice in the rescue you've provided. That as we look to you, our great and holy God, we would see hope and mercy in your rescue. Grant us the courage to bring this message even to our enemies. In Jesus' name we pray.